Hello and welcome to the We're All Stories podcast. Stories are who we are and what we leave behind after we go. I hope you enjoy this one I put together for you today. A brief note to parents, today's episode contains some sexual content as well as violence, so keep that in mind when letting little ones listen. Hello everybody and welcome to this, the second episode of the We're All Stories podcast. Today we're taking a look at the Great Flood or Noah's Flood and Flood mythology. Now I know what you may be thinking, I've heard this one before. But stick around, it may just surprise you. So probably most of us are familiar with the story of Noah's Ark. An account of this story is found in the Bible in Genesis chapters 5 through 9. So here it is. Basically, God created the world, but men were wicked and evil, so God says enough was enough. God is going to cause a great flood to wipe out everything off the face of the earth. Then along comes Noah. Now God sees that he is a good guy, and I mean after all the animals weren't to blame, so God tells Noah his plan and instructs him to build an ark to load himself, his wife, their three sons, and their wives, along with a sample of all the animals. Now just so you know, the two of every kind thing, that only applied to unclean animals. There were seven pairs of each of all the rest. Enough to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. According to King James. Now, this ark needs to be 300 cubits, about 450 feet long, by 50 cubits, 75 feet wide, and 30 cubits, 45 feet tall. In case you were wondering, a cubit equals roughly one and a half feet, and it has to be made out of gopher wood. And what is gopher wood, you might ask? No one knows. Genesis 6.14 is the one and only time we ever see this term. Ever. There is much speculation, some translations read cypress wood, and many scholars like this answer. The only problem is, Cyprus has a different name in Hebrew, Barash, not Gopher, or in any way even close to Gopher. So there's that then. Likely we will never know what Gopher Wood was referring to, and there's an extremely high probability that it is some extinct type of vegetation. It just doesn't exist anymore. Oh, but uh, with this whole flood and all, uh, did I mention it's all going down in a week? So Noah gets to building. Everybody comes by to see this weirdo building a big boat on dry land. Build it and they will come. The animals start showing up. Then it starts raining. It pours for 40 days and 40 nights straight. Egg on their face when the water is up to their knees and they're knocking on Noah's door. So the entire earth is flooded. Noah and his family are all nice and cozy chilling with the animals while the whole earth floods and everyone else is wiped out. After 150 days, the water starts to recede. After another 150, things are still receding. After a while, the Ark lands on top of the Ararat Mountains. Where are the Ararat Mountains? Who knows? The location of these mountains has been debated for thousands of years. Noah sends out a dove to check, see if there's dry land yet, and the dove comes right back. So he waits a week and tries again. This time, the dove brings back an olive branch, showing that land was beginning to reappear. Then, he waits another week, and this time the dove flies the coop and never comes back. Noah figures the bird must have found somewhere to perch, so it must be safe to leave the ark. God lays out some laws to keep people in line so it doesn't return to that level on the badness meter, and says he'll never kill everyone in a giant flood again. They seal the deal with a rainbow. The end. 
Okay, so nothing big and exciting or earth-shattering there. But did you know that there are stories of a great flood in a ton of cultures across every inhabited continent? Let's take a look at a few. We're going to start with probably the next best-known story, which we find in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh was the fifth king of Uruk around 2500 BC. So Gilgamesh is walking around the world trying to find a way to cheat death after his friend Enkidu dies and he decides he doesn't want to share Enkidu's fate. He is Gilgamesh after all. So he's meandering along when he stumbles across this old guy named Utnapishtim who has an interesting story to tell. Hundreds of years prior, when Utnapishtim was a younger man, the gods, chiefly Enlil, god of winds and agriculture, inventor of the hoe and finder of men, are fed up with people, so they decide to kill everyone in a flood. The god Ea is against this plan, feeling it is disproportionate to the crime. Ea is a god associated with ritual purification. He is also a patron of the arts and culture. He is seen as a fertility god. He is depicted as half goat, half fish. If this sounds familiar, this is where we get the astronomical sign Capricorn. Ea tells Utnapishtim to make a giant boat for him and his family along with the seed of all living things, that is, mating pairs of all the animals. Sound familiar? So Utnapishtim does as Ea commands and the rain starts. After a while, the whole earth is flooded, so Utnapishtim and co. hang out for a long while until the boat lands on a mountain. He sends out a dove to find land, but no dice. He waits, then sends out a swallow, probably African if you're wondering, given the geographic location, and still no dice. He waits, and then sends out a raven, which finds land. The gods are feeling a little sheepish at this point, and the goddess Ishtar, goddess of war, sex, and oxymorons, love and war, fertility and death, fire making and fire quenching, uh, playing nice and being enemies, etc. She's patron of prostitutes and bars. She creates a rainbow as a promise that it won't happen again. Oh, and if you're wondering why Utnapishtim is still hanging around all these years later, one, as in the Bible, people of this era had crazy long lifespans. Gilgamesh is the king of Uruk for 126 years. No, that's not his lifespan. That's how long he was in power. And two, remember the god Enlil? The one whose idea it was in the first place? Well, to say sorry, he gave Utnapishtim and his wife eternal life. This explains why Gilgamesh makes him part of the tour when he is seeking his own key to eternal life. The next story comes to us from Iceland's Prose Edda, written around 1200 AD by the ever-verbose Snorri Sturluson. The legend itself is much older, but the earliest written record of it, and the vast majority of other Norse myths, comes to us via good old Snorri. This is a short one, it's a mere footnote in the greater creation story, which I hope to one day do a full episode on. So in the beginning, there's one giant named Ymir. While he is sleeping, his feet somehow start doing the dirty with each other and produce baby giants. I guess his arms were doing it with his torso, and he has baby giants popping out of his armpits. Then along comes Odin, or Othin in the original. The D in Odin was actually originally a letter called an Ev, and it was pronounced like our TH. The Ev happens to look remarkably like the letter D in English, and so the English replaced Ev with D. Sidebar. This eth is only used in the middle of words. Th at the beginning of a word, like in Thor, is called a thorn. That looks remarkably like a thorn on a branch. 
So Othan shows up, along with his lesser-known brothers, Vili and Vey. They kill Ymir, and his blood gushes out in a great flood that kills all the giants except Bergomir and his family, who survives making a boat and hanging out until the water dies down. When the water abates some, Ymir's salt blood becomes the oceans. If you're wondering what they did with the rest of Ymir, his flesh becomes the land, his bones the mountain, his teeth the rocks and pebbles, his skull they put over it all to create the sky. It's being held up by four dwarves, one in each corner. They're named North, South, East, and West. If those names sound familiar, good. They should. Our last two tales from Europe are both short and sweet. Both are from Celtic traditions. The first comes to us from 17th or 18th century Wales and was recorded by Yolo Morganug in the 1800s. Side note. Morganug's work is somewhat suspect since he claims to have found his stories in their entirety in ancient manuscripts, which later turned out to be forgeries that he had made himself. Anyway. In the Welsh version, the monster Afanc causes Lake Sheon. As an aside, Sheon looks like lion but with a double L. Most non-natives pronounce it Leon, but as near as I can tell, this is incorrect. Personally, I suck at making the sound, and I'm sure if any native Welsh are listening, they're probably getting a good laugh at me for trying. Double L in Welsh is called a voiceless alveolar fricative, and is actually pretty common in the world at large. After my Old Norse Icelandic classes in college, perhaps I should be better at making the sound, because Icelandic uses this sound, but being a natural Murrican speaker, this sounds alien to me. So as far as I've been able to find from native Welsh speakers, the double L is kind of a hissing noise made by pressing the tip of your tongue behind your top teeth like you would to pronounce L in English, but instead of saying UL, you push air through your cheeks around your tongue, so it comes out kind of like <sighs> Sounds kind of like a cat hissing to me. Anyway, getting back to the story, Afan causes Lake Xion to burst its banks until the world is flooded and everything and everyone dies, except for Dwifon and Dwifok. They survive in a massless boat with two of every type of animal. They land in Perdane, later to be called Britain, and the rest is history. The next comes from Celtic Ireland. There were two giants, Heaven and his woman Earth. Heaven lays on top of Earth, as couples do when reproducing, and are making baby titans. The problem is that apparently popping out babies didn't slow this power couple down. Heaven just kept going at it laying on top of Earth, so the baby titans are squished between their parents. Anyone who has had parents can imagine that this was probably extremely uncomfortable for these kids. I mean, I just can't imagine how many years of therapy it took to get over that particular experience. Not to mention... Both the children and their mother live in darkness because Heaven never lets Earth off her back. One day, one of the Titans decides that this was a little too uncomfortable and mentally scarring, so he kills Heaven and chops him up, similar to how Othan did in the Norse version. He uses the giant skull to make the sky, but a side effect is Heaven's blood pours out, raining down on the world, drowning everyone except two people who are saved when one of the titans takes pity on them and builds them a boat in which to weather the storm. Another version of this particular flood story has three or four men and anywhere from four to 150 women. 
They are told, sometimes by Noah, or sometimes by an idol they make after finding out God has abandoned them to their fate, they are to flee west to escape Noah's flood. And so they set out and settle in Ireland. But men divvy up the women and set about repopulating the earth. In my favorite version, there are three men and 150 women. The men take 50 wives each, but shortly after, one of the men dies. So all of his wives go and join the wives of the next man, who now has 100 wives to keep happy. He dies from sheer exhaustion while trying to get all 100 of them pregnant. Then his 100 turn to the last man. This man sees them coming, and he takes off running. He turns into a salmon and makes a clean getaway. This salmon is sometimes linked to the Salmon of Knowledge from the stories of Finn McCool of the Fenian Cycle of Irish Legends, but... That is a story for another time. There are many more stories, Europe is a big place after all, containing many, many cultures, but let's travel away from Europe and move on to Africa. We'll be right back after these messages. Ever listen to a podcast and thought, hey, I bet I could do that, but then wonder how to go about it? I know I did. Then I found Buzzsprout.com. Buzzsprout gave me all the tools I needed to succeed and sound great. By starting a free account, I was able to publish my work and they even got me connected to all the major podcast directories. By upgrading to a paid account, I was able to keep more content on there and I got access to their aptly named Magic Mastering Tool. Your material is run automatically through this program, which balances the individual segments so it all sounds the same throughout and flows smooth. This is a must if you're recording in segments. If you use the link in the description, you'll get a $20 Amazon gift card for signing up for a paid membership. If you're passionate about something, get out there, share it, and let Buzzsprout do the rest. Make sure to check out our Patreon page. When you donate to this podcast, not only are you showing your support, but you are also getting access to special notes, polls to help pick future episodes and merch, as well as recipes to go along with the episodes. So check it out. And now, when you pledge $25 a month, we will send you your very own Raven's Wing mug. Follow the link in the show notes to take a look. And now, back to the show. In the pygmy tradition, Chameleon is chilling, doing his chameleon things on a tree. Now this time, there is no water in the world. Chameleon hears a weird noise coming from inside his tree, so he cuts it open. Water comes gushing out from the tree and floods the earth. Along with the water, a pair of humans pops out. These are the first humans, and everyone is descended from them. I like this story because the arrival of the flood brings life rather than death. It sets water as life-giver rather than life-taker. In Egypt, flooding is an annual thing. Every year the Nile floods its banks, nourishing and fertilizing the fields, making them ready for planting. This flooding is so important to the ancient Egyptians that they set their calendar by it. But this particular story isn't about a flood of the Nile so much as a flood of blood. Ra gets worried that the people are going to depose him, so he sends the goddess Hathor to deal with it. Hathor is interesting because she is the intrinsic female, 
She defies description. She is dynamic, multifaceted, and many-faced. She is the mother, wife, and daughter of Ra. She is usually portrayed as a cow or as a woman with cow horns, reflecting her ties to agriculture and fertility. She is seen as the greatest mother, giving birth to many of the gods and goddesses with almost as many fathers. She is the embodiment of femininity and female sexuality. She is also the Eye of Ra, or at least an Eye of Ra, he has two after all, and as such is an extension of him. More specifically, his jealous ventral side. In this capacity, she becomes the goddess Sekhmet, a roaring lioness, warrior goddess, defender of the gods, and by extension the pharaohs. Sekhmet carries out her divine punishment by killing all the humans indiscriminately. The blood of the slain causes the Nile to turn red and flood, running to the oceans, causing them to rise too. Ra, looking down and seeing what was going on, decides that we humans have had enough and had probably learned our lesson by now. So he tells the few survivors to brew beer and dye it red, then pour it all over the land. Sekhmet, seeing this river of red beer, mistakes it for blood and drinks it up, becoming quite drunk. The inebriated goddess falls asleep and reverts back to her old self, the Mother Hathor. This gave rise to the Festival of Drunkenness. This festival was celebrated annually on the 20th day of the month of Thoth, which was the first month of the ancient Egyptian calendar. Though its celebration is no longer widespread, modern celebrants do so in mid-August to coincide with the flooding of the Nile. This festival was celebrated with music and dancing, but most of all by drinking. In temple shrines or in their homes, it was customary to be served beer until they were blackout drunk and passed out. Those celebrants at the temples would be woken up the next morning with loud music to worship Hathor to see what epiphanies the goddess gave them in their, one can only assume, hungover state. While most of us now would see this as an excuse to get publicly wasted, for the ancient Egyptians this was a sacred time, not a big social event. Of the flood myths from Asia, I picked three stories from two different countries. The first comes from Siberia. The world flooded, but some people and animals survived by clinging to floating debris. The winds blew and scattered the debris with its passengers to all corners of the world. Once they got to their respective destinations, they set about repopulating and creating their own languages. That is how people came to be all over the globe and why they all speak different languages. Flood stories in China are unique in that, for the most part, they are seen as natural disasters, though sometimes caused by mythical creatures such as dragons or spirits, but not as punishment from the gods, and the day is saved by the work of humans. There are many versions of this story, but they share a common theme. The river floods, and a man named Guan sometimes steals or sometimes is granted use of expanding soil by the emperor or by the gods. He tries to use this soil to shore up the banks of the river to stop the flood. In versions where he steals the soil, he is killed for theft. When he is given the soil, he is killed for failure. Whatever the reasoning, he is killed, and his son Yu takes his place, and he successfully shores up the river. In one version, when Guan is killed by the gods for stealing the soil, his body is cut apart. From out of the corpse rises his son Yu in the form of a powerful dragon that even the gods are afraid of. So they let him use the soil to avoid his anger. 
After Yu successfully ends the flood, the body of Guan turns into a dragon as well. Father and son inhabit this river, and the two live happily ever after. In the more supernatural flood stories from China, the flood comes from the gods, usually as a punishment, and only a brother and sister survive. Sometimes they are warned by the gods themselves, sometimes by sages, or they are saved by their wise parents. Regardless of why, they climb into either a hollowed out gourd or log and wait out the storm. In some versions, it takes decades for the flood to end, and they come out very old. More commonly, they emerge still as fresh-faced youths. Here's where it gets messy. They are the only two people left in the world, and it is their duty to repopulate the Earth. The problem is, they're also brother and sister. In some versions, they're twins, even. Sometimes the gods tell them to marry, and the reluctant brother and sister give the gods various impossible tests. Like, each sibling rolls a millstone down opposite hills, and they must come together one on top of the other. Or, each throws a knife at random with a double sheath on the ground between them. The knives must both land settled in the sheath. Or similarly, they fire arrows that must land in a quiver. More commonly, it is the brother that tells the sister they must marry. The sister is weirded out by this, and she refuses. When the brother insists, she puts those same tests from the previous version to the brother, who accomplishes them either by the will of the gods or by trickery. For example, pre-staging different millstones one on top of the other, or pre-placing two other knives in the sheath when the sister isn't looking, or stuff like that. The end result being they marry and have lots of children and repopulate the earth. This story is interesting because of the theme of incest. There are strong incest taboos at place here, hence why the siblings don't couple willingly. There are incest taboos present in virtually every culture in the world, so why they are always portrayed as brother and sister is just beyond me. Next we head to the land down under. In one aboriginal story, God is angry and causes a flood, sometimes by urinating into the ocean, and the aborigines build an ark to survive. Some tellers of this tale say that this is the true version and that Noah's Ark was a copycat tale, a lie told by white men to put them down and make them subservient. Most people agree that this is likely the other way around and was derived from the Judeo-Christian version to challenge its authority and legitimacy. Another fun, more original story tells of the frog Titilic. Titilic is believed to be a water-carrying frog, a species unique to Australia who drinks up lots of water after it rains and burrows underground to survive the dry periods in between. Titilic the giant frog emerges from his hole to drink. He greedily guzzles down all the water in the land. The other plants and animals begin dying of thirst and the surviving animals decide something needs to be done. The owl tells them that the only way to get Titilic to release the water is to make him laugh. The animals all try and fail until the eel steps up and begins tying himself in various silly shapes, which Titilic thinks is absolutely hilarious. Like a rumble of thunder, Titilic starts to chuckle and then he just absolutely loses it, laughing his head off at the silly eel and his silly shapes. The water all comes gushing out at once, flooding the land. The water subsides and everyone lives happily ever after. Jumping continents once again, we land in the New World, America. 
According to the Ojibwe or Chippewa tribes of what is now southern Canada and the north midwestern United States, the Great Spirit becomes angry with man, so he causes an earth-encompassing flood. Wainabuzu builds a raft for himself and the animals to survive. That sounds familiar, right? Well, here's where things get interesting. While most of these stories are more focused on the beginning and or the end and kind of glosses over the middle, this story focuses on that middle. In this version, the waters don't go back down. After a while, Wainabuzu realizes they never will, so he must instead make the world anew. He decides this can only be accomplished by using dirt from the original earth. He tasks different animals with trying to swim down to retrieve said dirt. The loon tries and fails, then the beaver swings and misses. Lastly, Hajigata, a small duck called a coot, volunteers. The other animals laugh, and Wainabuzu tells him that he is much too small to possibly be able to do this, so he should just hang out and let the grown-ups do their work. Instead of sitting back as he was told, the coot jumps in and dives down. He dives down and down, further and further, surpassing what the other animals were able to do. The next day, Wainabuzu notices something floating in the water by the boat. He sadly fishes Ajigata's limp body out of the water when he notices something in his bill. It was a mouthful of earth. Though it cost him everything, Ajigata had managed to swim down to the old world and collect the dirt. Moved, Wainabuzu breathes life back into Ajigata and warms him with his body, nursing him back to health. Then the brave little coot swims away like it was nothing. Because of his sacrifice, Wainabuzu declares that all coots would have an honored place among the animals for all time. Wainabuzu then takes the dirt Ajigata had brought and shapes it, but he has nowhere to put it. Mikinok the Snapping Turtle comes over and tells Wainabuzu that he could toss it on his back as it was broad and flat. Wainabuzu places the tiny mouthful of dirt on Turtle's back and tells it to grow. He puts some ants on it to spin it around and help it spread, kind of like a potter's wheel. As it grows, the other animals step off the raft and onto dry land according to their size. Wainabuzu sends the birds out to fly over and observe the land and to send reports back to him in the form of song. They are still doing that to this day, and this is why we hear the birds singing as they fly overhead. So that is the story of how the earth was remade after the flood. A note about Wainabuzu. Wainabuzu is the Edemic figure in the Ojibwe culture. He was the first man. He is portrayed as a wise man and as a trickster. He is so intrinsic to their culture that the standard Ojibwe greeting, Buzu, is derived from his name. The Mohawk tribe tells a similar tale, but in their version, our world hadn't been created yet. Everyone in existence lived above us in the spirit world. It sounds like a pretty neat place. The land was full of game, the waters full of fish, and the crops planted themselves, and though it was always sunny and never rained, everything is always lush and green. So who can blame them for not creating anything down below? In this paradise, there is a super rich man, and in this land of wealth and plenty, that's really saying something. This rich man has a beautiful wife named Ada Ensik. This guy is super jealous, and when his wife becomes pregnant, for some reason he is convinced the child isn't his. 
He has his servants uproot a massive tree and shove her down in the hole. They push her deeper and deeper into the ground until she falls right through into our world. As she is falling, she apparently has the presence of mind to grab a strawberry plant so she has snacks for when she gets to her destination, and a tobacco plant to help her relax. Muskrat sees her falling and gets his buddies Loon, Beaver, Mink, and Turtle. They decide that one of them needs to let her live on their back, and Turtle being the only one with a big broad back is elected. But Turtle's shell is hard. They needed some dirt to cushion the fall. So Muskrat dives down, with no luck. Then Beaver, then Mink tries, and he gets some tiny pawful. He puts it on Turtle's back and it starts to grow, where it eventually becomes all the land we see today. But right now it is small. Once the landing zone is prepped, Loon flies up and guides her down to the world they had just made for her, on the fly, as it were. By the time she got there, the dirt had grown from a tiny clump to the size of her foot. She stands there on one foot until it is big enough for her to be able to sit down. A few days later, there is a whole island complete with trees and plants and rivers. She plants her strawberries and tobacco, and these are the world's first crops. By the time she is ready to give birth, the tiny bit of land Mink had retrieved had become all the continents we see today. She gave birth to a girl by herself, and that daughter would have her own adventures, but that's a story for another time. I do think it bears saying, though, that when her daughter comes of age, she helps the girl find a suitable husband, but she herself doesn't remarry, staying virtuous to the end. According to the Hopi, the Great Flood was not the first time the world was destroyed by the angry gods. In the first world, over time the people stopped worshipping the gods, forgetting their laws, and separating into different tribes. The gods became angry and destroyed the world with fire, saving only a handful of the faithful from each tribe by leading them to safety with a great cloud by day and a bright star by night to the caverns of the ants people, where they were kept safe. After the fire had died down, they re-emerged and repopulated. In this new world, the gods gave the people everything they needed. The tribes began to trade with one another, and after trade began, luxury items start to emerge. The people become more capitalist, and over time they come to value wealth over the gods. Then trouble started because of the unequal distribution of wealth, causing fights to break out, and then wars. This made the gods angry, so they destroyed the second world with ice. They caused the world to go off its axis, changing poles and freezing the land. Once again, a chosen few from each tribe were guided to the ant people and were saved. This is where things get good. The people re-re-emerge into this third new world and live happily ever after. For a little while, at least. Then someone invents a flying machine. He makes a great big leather shield, as it's described, which he uses to fly to another village, raid it, then fly away before anyone can catch him. Others see this and they start building their own flying machines and soon everyone's flying around stealing things and starting wars. I can just imagine the aerial dogfights going down. The gods see this and cause great waves to crash down, flooding the earth and rearranging the landscape. So, the first world was destroyed by fire. We see this corroborated in the traditions of other tribes in different parts of the New World, suggesting some kind of massive wildfire may have occurred in prehistory. Then comes the Ice Age, which everyone knows about. 
Then, when the earth floods, it breaks the land apart. In Lakota tradition, the water spills out of these cracks as the land splits up. Now see, up till then, there was only one land, which we refer to now as Pangaea. Then, a cataclysmic tectonic event occurs, breaking the supercontinent apart into smaller continents. Now, just looking at it rationally and scientifically, if a comparatively small earthquake can cause massively devastating tsunamis, what would a massive event like this cause? I can imagine in the watery chaos that ensues, it would have seemed like the world was being destroyed by water to the people who lived through it. In the Hopi legends, the survivors end up on a small bit of land that had previously been the top of a vast mountain, and they wait. They send out various birds to check and see if the land was reappearing yet, only to have them come back tired, showing that they had not found a place to land. The Lakota story has everyone and everything except Kanji the Crow drowning in the flood. Luckily, Kanji had a magic pipe bag that had in it some of every animal. Then, as in the Ojibwe tale, the waters would not go down, so Kanji realizes he must rebuild the world using dirt from the old world. Various animals try, loon, otter, and beaver. Then Turtle comes along and he dives down, bringing up a mouthful of dirt, which Kanji uses to rebuild the earth. People argue whether or not Noah's Flood actually happened, and it's not my place to say one way or another. But given the universal nature of the Flood myth, it seems like something may have happened involving a cataclysmic Flood event. Now, I doubt it was the blood of a giant as in the Celtic and Norse traditions, and while the aboriginal version of God peeing into the ocean to flood the earth is comical, it does not seem likely unless we look at these metaphorically or we take them as an interpretation of the events through the eyes of the given people that experienced it. Other accounts seem more scientifically accurate. For example, we are now finding evidence in China that reinforces their flood myths. As for the Native American versions, just, wow, recording a series of natural disasters, including the Ice Age and the existence of a supercontinent thousands of years before Pangaea was theorized in 1912 by the German Alfred Wegener. Did God wipe out the Earth with a massive global flood? Who can say? But these stories suggest we evaluate the idea with open eyes. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. This has been the We're All Stories podcast, a production of Ravenswing Studios. This story was researched, written, and read by me, David Huncherik. The music was written and performed by the supremely talented Brian Berger. If you liked what you heard, give us a like on whichever podcast directory you use. Now, doing a podcast is a real labor of love. A lot of time and effort goes into making this for you. If you would like to continue to hear new stories every two weeks, please consider supporting us through our Patreon page. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope to see you again soon.